The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States' relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound Off. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound Off with Kevin. Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. ACB talks health care to the Senate Judiciary Committee, plus Joe Biden and President Trump back out on the campaign trail. We've got every angle covered. And President Trump and the Republicans are divided on stimulus as Speaker Pelosi demands a revamp. I was up in the Senate today as Judge Amy Coney Barrett began her question and answer portion before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Now, of course, there are multiple, multiple stories that are convened upon this one Senate Judiciary Committee hearing room. You've got a political backdrop with Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden and President Trump campaigning in a sprint to the finish. And now Joe Biden saying that he is not in favor of expanding the Supreme Court. Meanwhile, you have President Trump trying to make inroads with suburban women, which he is getting completely losing grounds, multiple grounds in the polls, uh, and and trying to rally up the conservative base to change the trajectory of the of the of the race and and using the Supreme Court to do so. Then you've got the Senate races. The chairman of the committee itself, Lindsey Graham, locked in a very competitive race. In South Carolina. And then, of course, there is the policy on a collision course with regards to the Affordable Care Act. And should Judge Amy Coney Barrett be confirmed to the Supreme Court, as is expected, then she'll be sitting on the bench for and not in a sports metaphor way. She'll be literally on the SCOTUS bench uh, ruling uh, on the Affordable Care Act in mid-November, which will rule on the constitutionality of Obamacare. Take a listen to one of the key moments of ACB as she weighed in on health care. Here she is. I'm not sure it, to the extent there's a suggestion that I have an agenda that I want to strike down people's protection for pre-existing conditions. That's just not true. Um, I've never taken that position. And as I've also said repeatedly, any policy pre- preferences that I have don't matter anyway. They're irrelevant. So making that law... Coming out with the contours of the ACA, that's your job. So she spoke in, in very candid terms without saying specifically what, she, how she would rule on a specific case, and that is to be expected. Dan Flatley's with us. He is a Bloomberg Congress reporter. Dan, you were following these hearings all day. What did you? What was your big takeaway? So I think that you know, in general, she uh, uh, Judge Barrett has managed to sort of avoid uh, some of the pitfalls that. That could uh, could could trip her up. Um, she's been pressed repeatedly, of course, on um, the pending case regarding the Affordable Care Act that the Supreme Court 
we'll hear shortly after the election, and also on uh, whether she would potentially rule on a contested election. Uh, she's been asked by the Democratic members of the committee to recuse herself. Um, she hasn't committed to that. Um, she said she will take uh, each case as it comes. But she did say uh, that, one, she um, has no malice toward the Affordable Care Act, no malice toward any law, and two, that um, she has made no commitments to anyone at the White House regarding uh, the Affordable Care Act or the election. So um, Democratic members on the committee obviously a little bit skeptical uh, of that, as, as is their sort of uh, course uh, so far. But um, she's, she's definitely not uh, tripped up uh, too badly at this point, and uh, the hearings will, will continue till uh, 9 o'clock tonight. So still a ways to go. Still a ways to go for sure. I want to play for you, Dan Flatley, Bloomberg Congress reporter, what ACB had to say on Roe v. Wade, because uh, she was she has not, again, offered a stance on on uh, most hot button issues, including on Roe v. Wade. And that is to be expected. You don't anticipate that a that a SCOTUS uh, nomination will will say specifically how they would rule on a hypothetical case. Um, and. She offered no hints on how she would vote should the court should. And this is a key word. Should the court reconsider Roe v. Wade? Because there isn't a case before the Supreme Court right now on that particular case. And she said she doesn't consider that landmark abortion rights ruling a, quote, super precedent, end quote, that would be unthinkable to overturn. Take a listen. Here she is in her own words. Cases that are so well settled that no political actors and no people seriously push for their overruling. And I'm answering a lot of questions about Roe, which I think indicates that Roe doesn't fall in that category. So how, what did Democrats specifically ask and describe some of those moments on Roe v. Wade as it came up in the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing today? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think that that exchange over the super precedent was, was really interesting. Um, Judge Barrett was asked about you on uh, the, the landmark uh, uh, ruling in Brown versus Board of Education. And what she said there was, was that a, that was a super precedent. In other words, it's it's uh, so well settled that nobody would would uh, bring it up as a as a contentious case. Um, she said that wasn't the case with Roe v. Wade, uh, that it wasn't a super precedent, that it is controversial, that there are cases that could come before the Supreme Court um, regarding that ruling, but that it didn't necessarily mean that Roe wasn't settled law. So she sort of kind of took a middle road there, um, but she was definitely pressed on uh, Roe v. Wade several times by uh, the Democratic members of the committee, who, in addition to um, uh, 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 those sorts of questions, also uh, brought up health care repeatedly. Um, they wanted to make health care sort of front and center in this hearing, uh, and they asked her a lot about the Affordable Care Act. They asked her a lot about Roe v. Wade. They asked her about voting rights. Uh, but they repeatedly brought up stories of their constituents who benefited from um, coverage under the Affordable Care Act. So, you know, they're, they're speaking to sort of uh, a broader audience with that. You know, they're taking their case directly to the voters who, are, who may be watching or the people that, that may be seeing clips of this later on. Um, to sort of make their case in public, uh, because at this point there's there's little doubt that the Republicans have the votes to confirm Judge Barrett. So they're not trying to convince their colleagues, and they're not necessarily trying to find out anything probative about 
Judge Barrett's judicial philosophy, they're really sort of making a case to the American people uh, with their questions today. Dan Flatley on the line. He is a Bloomberg Congress supporter making an incredibly smart and poignant point there, folks, that they're not just playing to the room. They are playing to the entire country. They are playing for what is at stake uh, on November 3rd uh, when the the voting ends, I should say. Uh, And that is control of the Senate, control of the House, majorities in Congress. And so uh, it's particularly uh, notable when you've got the vice presidential nominee for the Democrats, Kamala Harris, on the committee. You've got a rising star in Senator Josh Hawley, a Republican from Missouri, who accused Democrats of attacking Barrett for her Catholic faith, saying that they have tried to institute a, quote, religious test, end quote, for the Supreme Court in violation of the Constitution. So you've got every which way of political imagery. Senator Mike Lee, a Republican from Utah, recovering from the coronavirus, saying that he has tested negative, speaking in the hearing room without a mask. This is Democrats bringing up during the confirmation hearing room or during during the confirmation proceedings about what they're calling a super spreader event at the White House on the day Judge Amy Coney Barrett was announced as the, as the president's choice. So just a remarkable, remarkable political moment, 21 days out until the November 3rd elections. Again, not just for the president, but also for the Senate and for the House. I got a minute left with you, Dan. Thanks so much for breaking this down. Any closing thoughts on what we should be looking out for tomorrow and for the rest of the week and when we might get a vote uh, from the committee and then very quickly uh, in the Senate? Right. So um, uh, um, as far as the vote goes, Senator uh, Lindsey Graham, who is the chairman of the committee, said that he will hold a vote. I believe it's a week from Thursday. So the hearings will will wrap up Thursday. So October 22nd will be the vote uh, out of committee. Uh, And then Senator uh, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, obviously has said that they will move on that swiftly. But, you know, we're talking about October. The difference between October 22nd and November 3rd, Election Day, is, is, is pretty it's a pretty narrow window. Um, so they can't afford to lose any anybody. <laughs> uh, you know, you mentioned the coronavirus, and, and that's kind of a salient point here because yeah. um, you had two members who were, um, you know, there was some Infected. question whether they would be able to attend um, the hearing. They can't get sick. They so. can't get sick. Absolutely. Smart point right there. Dan Flatley, thank you so much uh, for your time. Bloomberg Congress reporter. More coming up next. Dan Flatley all over the story for us. More coming up next. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. And um, has anyone else been getting all these links for all this stuff that you don't need on... um, I don't know if I'm allowed to say... I guess it's like that day where you order online and they, you know, on that app and they... All that useless stuff that we've all been ordering all year, and then they send it to you. I've been getting so many links. I don't need baskets. 
I don't need baskets for anything. So I don't know why people keep – I said to my mother, I texted her, I said, I don't need baskets. And here I am like going through this app. Do I need them? Do I not need them? You know? I don't know. It's I don't know if it's Prime Day. I guess who who knows. All right. Anyway, joining us on the line to walk us through what happened in the markets today, Arian Vajdani. He is investment strategist at MV Financial in Bethesda, Maryland. Arian, did you order anything offline today? I can't say I did, but I uh, luckily I didn't get any basket offers. I can you say know, that. Yeah, I guess I guess because there's all these shows that are streaming that are telling everybody to organize their closets and their kitchens and their whatnot. Sure. I saw like Reese Witherspoon's in one. I, I they got a Kardashian in one. I thought, you know, oh, what's the other one where the Mari Kondo? I don't understand it. Anyway, uh, too much streaming. Stocks fell on speculation that recent gains have outpaced prospects for a quick end to the stalemate over fresh economic stimulus. Treasuries and the dollar climbed. Banks led losses in the S and P 500 with J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co., and Citigroup sinking as investors worried the third quarter earnings signaled just a pause in pain from soured loans. All right. So, first of all, it's Prime Day, and then Apple had their event. But let's start with what happened in the markets today, Arian. What happened in the markets? Sure. I I think you're seeing just a normal cyclical pullback and people trying to take stock of where we are. I'm not surprised at all that you see a a day like this where you pull back and you break a four-day winning streak. I think you're going to see that kind of market movement uh, for quite a long time here until we really see some sort of uh, catalyst moving us one way or the other. Right now, we're in a holding pattern. So I think that some people are taking stock of, you know, the uncertain environment. You know, some days we get ahead of ourselves. Obviously, yesterday was a big up day compared to today as a down day. So I think some people are just taking stock of that and, and realizing, hey, there still is all this uncertainty uh, a, a front of, in front of us and around us. And, you know, some of the numbers don't look good. Obviously, the prospects of COVID drawing out longer for companies like the financial companies, lower interest rates for longer, that's not a, a great, you know, long-term or really intermediate-term outlook for now. You know, it's it's a really great point. And meanwhile, you've got Apple and Amazon. What did they do today? Uh, just given, you know, we had that Apple event with the 5G phone and, of course, Prime Day. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I always say this about Apple is that Apple seems to be like the most dramatic stock in the S&P 500 or <laughs> in the market. You it's know, like every Kev. time, yeah, <laughs> every time Christine's there's like laughing. news. Yeah, every time there's news, you know, you see people start to, you know, say this, or, you know, make grand, you know, sweeping gestures about Apple, about, you know, this is the, this iPhone cycle is not going to sell, this is not going to work, it's too expensive, it's ahead of itself. But, you know, every time, you know, Apple seems to crush that kind of, uh, you know, diminishment that people give it, and, and this is just more of that drama. So I, I kind of look past it. I think, you know, this is what we expected to see is a, is a lineup of iPhones. Are people going to continue to buy iPhones in the COVID era? That's the question. You know, are we going to see the same kind of lines outside? No, but, uh, you know, do I, am I negative on Apple after today? No, I'm not. Does it have a place in my portfolio and my clients' portfolios? Sure, it does. Do I think that investors should overload their portfolios with these big tech companies in face of these tech companies really being the major drivers of the markets today? I don't think so. I think diversification, we tell our clients this, diversification remains important, even though in current market cycle these companies are dominating. You will see other types of companies play an important role in a well-positioned portfolio. Breaking news, headline crossing the Bloomberg Terminal. The Supreme Court is going to let President Trump 
uh, end the census count early. Again, if you've been following the census and its impact on businesses, uh, the Supreme Court allowing for President Trump, uh, the administration, to end the census count early. Uh, Arian Vajdani is with us on the line. He is at MV Financial uh, in Bethesda, Maryland. Meanwhile, prospects, Arian, for U.S. fiscal stimulus before Election Day dimmed. Because you've got Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi demanding the Trump administration revamp its latest offer and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell pushing a smaller scale strategy that she is still rejecting. So uh, how how is the need for fiscal stimulus? How are investors eyeing the need for fiscal stimulus now that the timeline has once again been punted toward after November 3rd? That's a great question. I, you know, it, it goes out saying fiscal stimulus is extremely important for the economy at large. You know, you see Fed Powell say, uh, sorry, Chairman Fed, uh, Fed Powell say this all the time, that this is really going to become something that really helps, you know, uh, you know, in people, Main Street, and just the general broad economy, especially companies that are struggling right now. We need to see some sort of stimulus. The kind of stagnation we see uh, in the capital is it's not great for the outlook. Obviously, stocks are a little bit um, by a little bit, I mean quite a bit, uh, you know, diverged from the real economy. But the economy itself needs that stimulus, and we, we hope, and I think most investors hope, to see some sort of progress there. And it's earnings uh, earnings season, so to speak. we got Wells Fargo tomorrow, Bank of America, Goldman, Morgan Stanley going to come out on Thursday. Um, and then you've got the international front. But let's stick with earnings for a second. What are you, you going to be watching for uh, this week with earnings? Yeah, you know, really when it comes to, you know, those kind of financial companies you talked about, those are important because obviously the outlook with interest rates, like I said before, interest rates being low for so long, that puts a hamper on those kind of companies. Obviously, these financial companies or these big banks were much stronger coming into this recession. Uh, really just kind of seeing what, what the outlook is, what the sentiment is in those earnings calls is going to be very important, I think, for us and for investors just across the market moving forward, because there's just so much uncertainty. We need to hear what kind of guidance, what kind of uh, thought process is really uh, driving leadership at these companies. Arian Vajnani's on the line. He's an investment strategist at MV Financial in Bethesda. You know, there's so much. Jonathan Farrell, my colleague on Bloomberg Surveillance, I thought he nailed this. And he said, regardless of the outcome of the election, the market's going to interpret it as a positive, uh, is the way he put it. I mean, they're going to say if Biden wins, oh, it means more government spending, much more fiscal stimulus. If Trump wins, they're going to say, oh, more deregulation. What do you tell your clients about how to navigate through uh, the political volatility that will happen in early November? Yeah, well, first off, I like that point that he made. That that makes a lot of sense. And, and you know, we're we're hearing this to your, to your question. We're hearing these questions around the election, uh, pretty almost on a daily basis at this point. And we tell our clients that you know, election outcomes in in most cases, and, and really they have a shorthand in the market. If you remember, and we go back to 2016 when uh, Trump won, everyone every time there was notion that the Trump administration or the Trumps were going to really gain ground here, the market would dip down. Comey came out saying they're reinvestigating Hillary's emails. The yeah. market went down. Then Trump won, and we had this huge like animal spirit awakening in the market. It was the Trump trade, and that all deflated pretty quickly. And the point in me bringing this all up is you should not play the election into your, into your portfolio. You know, there's bigger things at play in the general economic sense that are going to really affect the market and your portfolio. 
And if you're going to make a knee-jerk reaction based on who you think is going to win or based on some scenario that of uh, someone winning, you can't really model that out. You have to wait for the data. You have to look at the fundamentals. And really, in today's world, a very challenging market cycle with uh, COVID and with this recession that the entire world is facing, it's, it's just too much. Uh, there's too much at play to be able to really say, hey, based on X because of the election, I should do Y. That's not a good move at this time. Really prescient analysis right there from Arian Vadani, who is an investment strategist at MV Financial and Bethesda. Arian, thank you so much for making time for me today. Come back anytime. And again, just that red headline crossing the Bloomberg terminal that the Supreme Court has ruled in favor of the Trump administration that they can discontinue and stop the census. I'm Kevin Cirilli. More next. This is Bloomberg 99.1. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States' relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound Off. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound Off with Kevin on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Judge Jamie Coney Barrett answers questions before the Senate Judiciary Committee and President Trump back out on the campaign trail, as is Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden. Buckle up, finish strong, 21 days and counting until the November 3rd elections. Lots to get through, all of that, plus what happened in, uh, in the markets. Judge Jamie Coney Barrett. I was up in the Senate today. She was testifying before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Day two, technically, of the hearings, but day one, day one of the question and answer portion of the hearings. And it's still going on. It's going to be going on until about nine o'clock Eastern tonight. And let me tell you, they are they are really moving through this thing. But it's it's incredibly fascinating, just not just because of the question and answer portion, but also because of the backdrop to all of this. It's not just the presidential election, right? You've got Joe Biden now coming out saying that he's not in favor of adding additional judges to the Supreme Court. He doesn't prefer to do that. And then you've got President Trump, who's trying to make inroads uh, with suburban women, but also keep the base of the Republican Party in which polls have him trailing in every battleground state. But then, and I say this importantly, the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Lindsey Graham, Republican South Carolina, in the fight for his political life down in South Carolina, this Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is doing everything in his power to fend off a blue wave. All right, so with that as the backdrop, now let's get into the policy, right? Because the confirmation hearings for Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett continued today in Washington, and she was pressed on what could be the first case that she rules on in early November, just short the week after the November 3rd election on the Affordable Care Act. Barrett disagreed with the Supreme Court's two rulings upholding parts of the health care law 
But she said just because she disagreed with those rulings does not mean she disagrees with the entire law. Take a listen to what she said before the committee earlier today. I'm not sure it, to the extent there's a suggestion that I have an agenda that I want to strike down people's protection for pre-existing conditions. That's just not true. Um, I've never taken that position. And as I've also said repeatedly, any policy preferences that I have don't matter anyway. They're irrelevant. So making that law, coming out with the contours of the ACA, that's your job. There she was with regards to the Affordable Care Act. And with that, I'd like to welcome our panelists for the hour. John Sidalese is a geopolitical strategist at Trilogy Advisors and a diplomacy consultant to the State Department. And Isaac Wright, a democratic strategist and partner at Forward Solutions Strategy Group and the co-founder of the Rural Voter Institute. Isaac, right there, we've heard from Democrats on this uh, with regards to health care. What did you take away from Judge Amy Coney Barrett's comments with regards to Obamacare? Well, I mean, look, she was intentionally evasive. Uh, she's made clear her views already that she is uh, very hostile to the ACA and that is likely to vote uh, to repeal it. You know, people's pre-existing condition coverage, uh, young people's ability to stay on their parents' health care until they're 26, uh, all these things are on the line. And she was being evasive. Uh, I appreciated when Senator Feinstein uh, quoted uh, from some previous Supreme Court justices uh, and nominees who did make clear opinions on things. And when she was given the chance, she didn't. Uh, This is incredibly important. And this is the kind of thing that's going to motivate voters, right? At a time when nobody wants to see pre-existing conditions. Uh, and the coverage form taken away here in the midst of the COVID pandemic with people coming out with lung scarring, with all these long-term conditions, uh, I think it's going to drive more people out to vote. You know, we've seen some public polls that say there is a majority of Americans who believe this should be held off for another six weeks uh, and let the new president decide. Uh, And I think Republicans are going to pay a cost of the ballot box. You made a great mention of Lindsey Graham. You know, I used to live in South Carolina. I Whereabouts? think this could be what puts it over the top. I lived in Columbia for a year uh, oh, during presidential city. primaries in my younger days. Great day. food. Oh, Great yeah, man. food. Oh, best she crab soup and oysters in the world. Yeah, I would agree. But my, but my point is you're, he is looking at this could be the tipping point in what ends his political career. Uh, and the people of South Carolina, frankly, will be better off without it. But America may pay a price if Lindsey Graham... Uh, pushes Barrett through in order to do that. John Sinalini's come in here because especially as it relates to health care, we just heard from Isaac, I mean, right there, say what how, how how Democrats are framing this. And also, has it been a missed opportunity for Republicans, especially in the Senate and in the House, to say, well, this is what we would want health care to be if the Supreme Court strikes it down? Well, Democrats are smart to emphasize the health care issue at these hearings because they're otherwise going to be relatively surprise-free. There's almost no scenario under which he does not become the next justice of the Supreme Court. And so much of this is electioneering to try to galvanize various demographics and the Democratic base. I think this issue is going to be very important in the contest between Joe Biden and Donald Trump for the senior vote, where Trump seems to be faltering compared to 2016. And so they're bringing up all of these issues regarding um, health care concerns that seniors would have, as well as a number of under demographics. The abortion issue is always one that's important to galvanize, especially younger single women. And so even though 
There's no question about Roe v. Wade anytime in the near future, nor would anyone expect her to be able to answer that question, depending on which case exactly might ever come to the court. It's a great way to drive up to base. And there is uh, residue anger from 2016 over the Merrick Garland case. So in many ways, the Democrats are smart to use these hearings. They can't stop Barrett from becoming a justice. They'll use it to try to drive up uh, their voter base. Okay, but John, otherwise, I don't see anything consequential coming from these hearings, and well, uh, it's you. difficult to see. Pardon I'll, me? I'll, I'll tell you the biggest unknown, and I'm not saying this with humor. I mean, Dan Flatley pointed this out, my colleague, Bloomberg Congress reporter, in the last half hour. I mean, he said, you know, one of those members gets coronavirus, which you already have two members recovering from, then that really, really impacts uh, the timetable that, that Leader McConnell wants to have. I mean, he wants to have this the, the committee vote on this uh, next week. And then have uh, and then have the have it on the floor of the Senate before the election. You mentioned Roe v. Wade. I do want to play uh, Judge Amy Coney Barrett's response with regards to how she would vote should the court reconsider Roe v. Wade. Although she said she doesn't consider the landmark abortion rights ruling a quote super precedent end quote that would be unthinkable to overturn. Take a listen to what she said. Cases that are so well settled that no political actors and no people seriously push for their overruling. And I'm answering a lot of questions about Roe, which I think indicates that Roe doesn't fall in that category. So there you have her her, her say it right there. Uh, and, and coming up, we're going to have much, much more uh, coverage uh, of Judge Amy Coney Barrett. We're also going to talk about the dynamics of the room, the impact that it has on down-ballot races. We've just started touching the surface of, of what to get through, and all of that uh, as Joe Biden, President Trump, in the sprint to the finish. They're barnstorming across the country by train, by campaign planes, by socially distant rallies, maybe? Download the Bloomberg Sound on podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. For all of our latest coverage, not only on Judge Amy Coney Barrett, but COVID-19, head over to Bloomberg.com slash coronavirus. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. Oh, I could hide the wind This song, I listen to this every day for the past month. I love the monkeys. Who doesn't love the monkeys? I'm Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Cheer up, Sleepy Jean. Uh, who's with me today? John Sinalides. John, are you a uh, a monkeys fan? What's your favorite monkey I'm a song? Huge monkey fan. Daydream believer throughout my life. Yes, yes, it's a good. One. <laughs> do, you, do you know any monkeys deep cuts? Um, Stepping Stone, I think, was yes. their most intense song. Uh, yeah, that was a real rocker. Uh, not just stepping. Okay, yeah, great one. Isaac almost Wright, angry. Almost. <laughs> Okay, what about the last train to Clarksville? Isaac Wright, Democratic strategist, partner for Forward Solutions Strategy Group. Isaac, are you a Monkees fan? I you am. Just no. Don't ask me to sing. Nobody I won't. I promise you, I won't ask sing. you to sing. No one wants to hear me sing either. <laughs> but what's your favorite monkey song? Man, I don't. Remember. I can't name a favorite. Maybe oh. uh, I, I was more of a fan of the TV show. Don't you remember they had that TV show for a while? No, because I'm a little young. But um, I. Oh, 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 I <laughs> <laughs> what is that Did like? You have to go there. No, I no. But what about "I'm a Believer" or um, "As We Go Along" is a great one. 
Um, last train to Clarksville. Last train to Clarksville. Listen to the band. Come on. Listen to the yeah. band is a is a great one. And then before I get back to the fiscal stimulus, I'm just gonna. What's the other one I like? Uh, uh, I'm not your stepping stone. And yeah, all right, they've got a lot. All right. Uh, meanwhile, back to the fiscal stimulus because Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi turning down another offer from the White House uh, on stimulus. And Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has a lot to say about it. Take a listen to what uh, to what Leader McConnell had to say about the the, the stimulus. Here, here he is. We've been in negotiation with the speaker. She's been demanding we throw $3 trillion at this problem in a way that is largely, in many respects, unrelated to solving the problem. Investor Front Ben Emmons writing in a note out tonight, quote, headlines of stimulus talks and election polling continue to fuel the broad risk rally. The current themes of a recovery, reflation and rotation are so dominant, Ben writes, while there is a strengthening consensus that the former vice president Joe Biden will win the election on November 3rd. And just within the last five minutes, Kelly McEnany, who, of course, is the White House press secretary, just tweeted out moments ago, quote, for weeks, the White House has made continual offers of COVID relief and moved closer to the middle while Nancy Pelosi has sat staunchly at no. Senate Democrats who now say we should focus on relief for the American people should bring their empty calls directly to Nancy Pelosi. And we should note that uh, Speaker Pelosi made that comment to my pal or to our our friends over at, at Gray TV uh, where Greta Van Session works. Um Okay, John Sinalides, why are we at a deal? Because it's election year politics, Kevin. Really, I mean, it's it's pretty straightforward. Sad, and sad. Uh, the, the president, the president needs to shore up his numbers. Um, he is behind Biden. We don't know what the exact numbers are and how that plays out in the battleground states, but he does need to shore up his support especially on economic issues, that he really, I think, missed an opportunity at the debate with former Vice President Biden to just look into the camera and explain to the American people what has been a tremendous economy through February of this year. Um, really, he gets a lot of the credit for it because many critics dismissed his ability to help re-energize the economy when he was running in 15 and 16. And we're now at a situation, Kevin, where the end of October, we're expecting the federal government to announce that annualized GDP growth in the third quarter for the U.S. economy is going to be somewhere to historic 30 to 35 percent. I mean, that's a rocket-like trajectory from the depths of the second quarter. And that'll be a week before the election. I think the president's looking to get the American people to focus on living with COVID as safely and as commonsensically as possible, while also making sure that we are in a position to refire, restart our economy, and to make the argument against Biden that he is in no position to do anything for the economy along the lines of what Donald Trump did. And this bill is going to be an important part of that. One more thing. McConnell has to make very clear he can save as many of the Republican senators that are in trouble as possible. They need to demonstrate, because the media is framing this purely as a Pelosi victory, that the Senate Republicans are giving this their every shot in September and now the end of October so that these senators can go back and say, we wanted relief, but not the kind of crazy expenditures that Speaker Pelosi was looking at with the $3 trillion bill. John, you you know, you and I have talked you know, offline before. I I don't see this as a as a Speaker Pelosi victory. I, I think it's a failure of Washington, Isaac, that Republicans and Democrats, in the midst of the worst economic downturn since the Depression, can't sit in a room together and get a deal. Isaac, I I, I to me it, it it doesn't even make sense. Well, I, 
as much as I would love to blame it on all of Washington, I, I don't think that's fair. I can't believe I'm defending it, but uh, I, I think we have to lay this squarely at the feet of Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell. I'm going to quote Donald Trump's words. I have instructed my representatives to stop negotiating until after the election, period. That was his public statement about the stimulus bill. He instructed his representatives to stop negotiating. The Bloomberg headline from, what, a week, 10 days ago, U.S. faces a new wave of economic pain as Trump halts aid talk. Washington Post headline, Trump just crushed stimulus talks, endangering the U.S. economy and 26 million on unemployment. New York Times headline, U.S. economy without more stimulus is nearing a dangerous tipping point. Trump was the one who canceled the stimulus negotiations. He pulled out. Um, I don't think it's fair to blame everybody that Trump pulled out of those negotiations up and down. Well, it John, is let me. Time for a change in leadership. John, you hear you hear Isaac right there, Democratic strategist, sure. partner of Forward Solutions mm-hmm. Strategy Group, co-founder of the Rural Voter Institute. John Sidalides, you know, you're over at Trilogy Advisors, of course. Uh, you know, uh, he ran. He President Trump campaigned on the notion of I'll get them all in a room. We'll sit down and we'll make a deal. Mm-hmm. I, so you know what I mean. I mean, why not? Why not try to force a deal? Well, Isaac is accurate in laying out all of those headlines from last Tuesday, I believe it was. Oh, we got 45 uh, we seconds. To, we, we need to remember that two days later, Trump instructed Mnuchin and Meadows to restart the negotiations, and they did so through the weekend. Uh, they've just been a- unable to come to a compromise. So the talks will continue. This is, this is high-stakes negotiations between the White House, the Senate, and the House. I don't think it's over yet. But it is important for McConnell to be able to shore up support among the senators that are faltering in certain key states. All right. Coming up, much more with the panel, Isaac and John, all-stars as we and smart, policy-oriented. I'm Kevin Cirilli. This is the last train to Clarksville by the Monkees. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Kevin Cirilli. I'm still a believer. Chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. I'm on such a monkey's kick this week. I don't know what it is. Christine Barada, our EP, Matt Shirley, they're all going back and forth in the in the group chat. They're telling me Barada's, Barada's reliving the glory days when she was on. But she was uh, seeing Davey at the at the concert, watching the Monkees revival show on MTV back when MTV played music videos. I I'm old enough to remember when the when MTV played the music videos. Anyway, better keep it on topic. Don't want to get too far off. Joining me now for the hour, John Sidalides, geopolitical strategist at Trilogy Advisors and Diplomacy Consultant to the State Department. Isaac Wright, Democratic strategist, partner at Forward Solution Strategy Group and co-founder of the Rural Voter Institute. Let's talk 2020. You've got President Trump barnstorming through the country. Florida, Iowa, 
Pennsylvania, North Carolina. That's Senate race in North Carolina, Tillis country. Can you hang on? Uh, and then you've got uh, Joe Biden, Pennsylvania, Ohio, trying to get Arizona back on the map. You know, Isaac, what, this is Joe Biden's race to lose. I, I'm looking at the Bloomberg News alert that just popped into my terminal. Here's a story from The Guardian. Biden leads Trump by 17 points as election race enters the final stage. Isaac? Yeah, I don't think we can take anything for granted, right? Uh, anybody who is planning their uh, party to watch the inaugural from home on TV, uh, I think is planning too soon. We have to keep our eye on the ball. We have to keep focused. Let's not forget Hillary Clinton was ahead in all the polls. She won the popular vote by 3 million votes, but she lost the Electoral College. We have to keep our eye on the ball as Democrats. We have to do everything we can to turn out every vote, to talk to every voter, leave no voter behind, and we have a chance to pick up the U.S. Senate as well. And those are those are the things we need to be focused on. Uh, can't can't start resting on laurels this close to the election. John Sinalides, look, I know you're going to say don't believe the polls, but really this is a strategy of Republicans trying to get red districts to glow red, to run up the score in conservative parts of the country. And what's the closing argument? Is it the economy? Is it China? What is it, John? It's a multiple uh, series of uh, variables here, Kevin. Uh, Look, a lot of this also, I think, has to do with uh, President Trump. Uh, In many ways, many supporters feel that he's done an exceptional job in terms of policy outcomes, but they're exhausted of the leadership style. And uh, more Mount Rushmore and less debating with Chris Wallace, I think, is a very important message for Trump as he barnstorms through these states, as you correctly note. But I'm also watching the Biden states. He's not taking any state for granted, as Isaac correctly noted. And he's fighting as if this thing is going to tighten because it is going to tighten. Right now, Biden has anywhere from, what, a four to whatever it is, a 12 or 15-point lead. But if you look at what happened in 2016, Kevin, uh, Hillary Clinton was leading by five to 14 points in a number of polls in mid-October. And then she lost when it came to the Electoral College because, in the end, that's all that matters. It doesn't matter if Biden blows up by 10 million uh, majority votes in the uh, popular vote, the Electoral College is all that matters. And that's the game that Trump is playing. And I think Biden learned from Hillary Clinton's lesson. So watch a race to to tighten very closely a number of issues that are going to be appealing to various demographics. I think Trump has a real shot at a 15 to 18 percent of the black vote, especially with black men, and anywhere from 35 to 40 percent of the Latino vote. Those two alone could help uh, save a number of the states that Trump won in 2016. The collapse of suburban women is going to be a problem for Trump. As I mentioned earlier, also some problems with seniors. He's got to well, shore up that senior vote, especially Ryan in Teague Florida. Beckwith is, my colleague Ryan Teague Beckwith has a story out on the terminal uh, that I just thought nailed the issue of the seniors. And, and, and he, he reports, Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden appealed to seniors in Florida. Former President Barack Obama will hit the campaign trail soon for his former vice president. And <laughs> Senator Mitt Romney is upset about President Donald Trump and YouTube. To pundit 
Keith Olbermann. I mean, this is with with the regards to wooing Florida seniors. Uh, Ryan reports speaking to a small crowd at a commu- community center in Pembroke Pines. Biden ticked off what he believes is Trump's failures in handling the coronavirus pandemic, which has proved particularly lethal for older patients who account for the vast majority of the more than two hundred and ten thousand U.S. deaths from the virus. Uh, Biden said, "Quote: You deserve security. You deserve respect. You deserve peace of mind." To Donald Trump, you're expendable. You're forgettable. You're a nobody. Obviously, the president hits back on that and, and refutes that. But in a state like Florida, I, John, I think this is a really smart point that you bring up. Trump is winning at, at margins amongst Hispanics, but on seniors, he's really lost ground. So how does he turn it around? I think he just has to keep hammering away, first of all, that it is not, and you're going to hear a lot about the Wuhan and the China virus, that this was not anything that he or any president could have done anything better than what's been accomplished at the advice of his scientific advisors during the course of the year. The good news is the seniors in Florida have been in a relatively healthier condition than the ones who were killed by policies in New York State and Connecticut and in New Jersey earlier this year by edict of those governors. So Florida overall, I don't think it's so much of a COVID issue, Kevin. I think the issue there is the kind of health care attacks that you're seeing from Biden, from the Democratic Party more broadly, as it's playing out this week in the judicial nomination hearings, that somehow an attack on Obamacare, on the Affordable Care Act, and pre-existing conditions is a threat to seniors' health. And I think that's going to be the attack line from Biden. Trump is going to be able to refute that and talk about how there's actually going to be a plan this time around, as opposed to what happened in this first term, to provide for assurance for seniors' They're in good hands as well as those with pre-existing conditions. Well, let's rip up the script, to quote my good friend and mentor Tom Keen on Bloomberg Surveillance. Let's rip up the script. Isaac Fright, senior citizens, this is, the, this is coming down to the key, crucial, crucial Floridian vote. Yeah, I mean, look, there are folks in Florida across the state of every generation, including seniors, who want to see a restoration of our country. And that's why they're coming to Joe Biden. Regardless of age, across the country right now, folks are worried about making their next rent payment, about making their next mortgage payment, and whether or not they can purchase prescription drugs or put food on the table if they're going to have to make a choice between the two. They say they see the people who are at the very top doing better than ever, while they're left to wonder who's looking out for them in this economy, in this crisis right now. And that's why Biden views the campaign as Scranton versus Park Avenue. From his viewpoint on Park Avenue, all Donald Trump can see is Wall Street. But Joe Biden was Scranton values. Those are the values we need right now in a battle for the soul of our nation. Johnson, regardless of generation, that's what people across the country, and in this case across Florida, are coming to Joe Biden about. John Sidalides is the next debate, final debate. Is it should the president skip it or should he participate? No, he absolutely has to participate. I mean, he didn't take advantage of the opportunity, as he claims. The media has completely obfuscated what he considers to be a sterling record of achievement on behalf of the economy, small business, black unemployment, Latino unemployment. And instead, he got caught up in bickering with Joe Biden and with Chris Wallace. 
So he wasted that opportunity. There's no debate on October 15th, so he's got one more debate opportunity to look people in the eye and explain to them what he's done, what he believes he can do in the next term, offer a vision, and then I think really hit home his message that Joe Biden, as amicable a gentleman as he may be, is simply in no mental or physical condition to lead the United States and the free world for the next four years. It's going to be remarkable, that debate, and, and just so many, so many developments, just absolutely uh, creating such a volatile, volatile dynamic. Coming up, I'm going to check in with John and with Isaac with what's on their radar. And I know John will tell us something about what's happening in the world because he always talks geopolitics with us, and we're grateful for him lending his geopolitical insights for us. That's what's coming up. You can download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com. Or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. And uh, we got a lot more coming up next. And just a quick note. uh, Just a quick note uh, that uh, Senator Kamala Harris, again, about to ask more questions on the Senate Judiciary Committee. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. My name's Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for uh, Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. And stocks dropped on stimulus deadlock. Stocks fell on speculation that recent gains have outpaced prospects for a quick end to the stalemate over fresh economic stimulus. Treasuries in the dollar climbed. Banks led losses in the S&P 500 with J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. and Citigroup, Inc. sinking as investors worried that third quarter earnings signaled just a pause in pain. From soured loans, Eli Lilly & Co. tumbled after putting its government-sponsored antibody test on hold due to potential safety concerns. And of course, folks, this came just hours after uh, J&J, Johnson & Johnson, paused its COVID-19 vaccination trial. Amazon, Prime Day, right? Amazon closed little changed, and Apple slumped after Monday's surge in big tech. So they had the uh, the big Apple event, I heard. They're the great find. The 5G speed phone, the new iPhone. I just got my new phone. See, I never know John Sidalides, a trilogy advisors and a uh, consultant to the U.S. State Department. I never know. I'm not up to speed on the tech gadgets. You know what I'm saying? Like, I never know when you should get the phone, not get the phone. I don't know. I'm not good at that stuff. You're talking to the wrong person. Right, I've got four not. teenage boys. They're my IT team, okay? okay. <laughs> I'm so, completely reliant on them to survive all of these technological changes. Yeah, I, I, I don't understand why anyone, the thing on your the watch <laughs> thing, I don't understand that. Isaac Wright's on with us too. Democratic strategist, partner of Forward Solution Strategy Group, co-founder of the Rural Voter Institute. All right, it is time for my favorite part of the day. Well, favorite part of the show, <laughs> and it's called What's on Your Radar. Uh, it's where the panel tells me one thing, uh, one story that needs some more needs some more play, needs some more un- unraveling, unpackaging. John Sidalides, what's on your radar? All right, I'm sorry, Kevin, but I've got an exciting combo to share with you. Good. War and Peace Take on the time. war side. U.S. Secretary uh, of the Army Ryan McCarthy announced today that the U.S. is testing a hypersonic missile that is a highly maneuverable missile at all angles and heights. goes about Mach 5 speed, almost 4,000 miles an hour. 
impossible to detect and destroy. And we now successfully tested a missile that's able to strike targets within a range of six inches. Talk about precision strikes. Wow. Wow. On the peace side, a 12-year-old boy in Tennessee has successfully built a working miniature nuclear fusion reactor. And oh. He claims the toughest part was making the chamber seal airtight. For the rest of us, the toughest part would be fusing nuclear particles. Okay. You know what I was doing at 12 years old for my science project? <laughs> I got, okay, my, 12, my seventh grade science project was which brand of popcorn in the microwave pops the most kernels. And this kid's out. I'm not even kidding. This is like a true story. And this kid's out there solving nuclear energy. John Sidalides, what's going on with China while I have you on? What's the latest on the China front? You know, China always puts us uh, in, a, in a sour direction because we have here an increasingly hostile threat to the regional order in Asia and to the global international rules-based order, whether it's the technology Cold War that they launched against the United States and the European Union, whether it's more and more incursions against their neighbors in the South China Sea, in India, in Japan. Now they're declaring that one-third of one of their countries to their western border, Kyrgyzstan, is actually Chinese. So there seems to be a never-ending series of escalations on the part of China against all of its neighbors and, unfortunately, against the global community. So what, what, why, don't you think, why don't you think China has been as much of a topic in this election as Republicans would have hoped for? I think for the most part, Kevin, uh, foreign policy is not a major issue for most Americans unless there's a direct challenge, say, after the September 11th attacks, or Americans are being killed in the service of their nation, which I mean, we haven't had in many seem, years. But a pandemic, I mean, it kind of seems like a major challenge. I, I just am surprised. I think we're so focused on getting our own lives in orders, getting our kids in school, seeing how we go back to our professional lives and some level of normalcy again. We're very inwardly focused right now, but I think in 2021, I think there will be bipartisan calls for accountability on the part of the Chinese. We just have to get past this internal crisis first. Yeah, all right. Isaac Wright, that, that's very smart, John. Isaac Wright, what's on your radar? So I think everybody right now is expecting to go into Election Day with a big, robust conversation about the economy. John mentioned earlier Republicans want to talk about the economy. Democrats obviously pointing to the fact Trump has lost 4.7 million jobs in the country since he took office, only the second president in 80 years going into reelection with overall job losses. But I think that looking beyond the impact of the Trump economic recession and what it means in the election – we need to pay attention specifically to what it means with, and, and what happens in the election with rural voters uh, and with faith voters. And I use, for example, uh, with rural voters, you know, with the Rural Voter Institute, in our polling this summer, Joe Biden had already narrowed the um, gap with rural voters in the swing state of Wisconsin to 13 points. That's compared to Hillary Clinton's 27-point gap, right? Uh, Governor Evers upset Governor Walker there in 2018 by holding the rural voter gap to 20 points. Joe Biden has run a great campaign in rural America. They are continuing to carry it through to the end of the election day. And the same thing in the faith community. Uh, our research found that about 24, only only 24 percent of rural voters say that they're generally uh, lean Democrat. However, another 24 percent say that although typically voting Republican, they will sometimes vote for the right Democrat, meaning half of weekly church-attending rural voters are up for grabs 
in this election. And you see groups like Faith 2020 and other groups like that that are popping up uh, and reaching out believers for Biden, Catholics for Biden, uh, evangelical pro-life voters for Biden, popping up in support of Joe Biden. And I think we're going to see a major realignment in, in the numbers in this country uh, between uh, the evangelical movement and mainline Protestant movement. I think in the next couple of weeks, even we'll see some evidence of where these things are starting to evolve and fall. Well, you know, you may, you mentioned the evangelicals in particular, and I know that you do such. Uh, you've, you, this is really your your wheelhouse. I mean, Catholicism in particular. Joe Biden would only be the second Catholic president in the nation's history, um, uh, as well. And, and Catholicism very much an issue at these at the Senate Judiciary Committee hearings. Can you just speak to that? The, the, just the role the Catholics have played in this election? Yeah, I think Joe Biden has uh, is a person who has lived by his faith. You know, when we think about the 25th chapter of Matthew and what Jesus' commandment was to his followers about how we treat uh, the sick, the poor, uh, the foreigner amongst us, Joe Biden has spent his entire public life living those values. He is a devout rosary-saying Catholic, and I think that makes a huge difference in reaching people with, it, with talking about his values. Um, I think the same thing with Kamala Harris, uh, a Baptist, my fellow Baptist, Kamala Harris, uh, connecting <clears throat> on values and faith with so many voters. And yeah. I think we're going to see a, a big change there from what we've seen in the past. In I the would know. I would know. I mean, this election. I mean, again, regardless of your politics, I mean, religion has has definitely played a factor in this in this election maybe in ways that we that none of us in the, in the media had anticipated here's what's on my radar 5G John and I have always talked about this and I only have a minute left John I'm, I'm sorry but mm-hmm. uh, we always talk about 5G in China and how secretary Pompeo and and Keith Kroc the undersecretary on on eco affairs have been really driving Europe for sticking with the the allies and 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 keeping them away from from the communist party's 5G network um, mm-hmm. And Verizon, the CEO Hans Vestberg appeared at the Apple event today and said, "Quote: 5G just got real." End quote. Uh, because Apple has now announced that they have a 5G phone, uh, and this is the this is obviously the biggest one uh, for for the U.S. So 5G coming to the United States on America's 5G network. All right, thank you to Isaac, thank you to John. That does it for me. Thank you for listening. I'm Kevin Cerilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.